Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles or in the bulletin to Revelation chapter 13. If you're visiting with us or new to us, we are studying through this book, this strange book to modern ears, uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But uh, we are breaking it down, making it as simple as possible, learning to interpret it from the Old Testament, learning to interpret it with biblical scholarship. And we've said that the whole thing means Jesus wins. We might call it Revelation for Dummies, uh, led by the chief dummy here. Revelation for Dummies. And uh, we are repeating a, a theme that will be we said last week, somewhat redundant toward the end of the from here forward, that uh, the devil is warring against the church of Jesus Christ. We learned last week in chapter 12 about the dragon and the woman. Dragon is bad, woman is good. Dragon is the devil, woman is the church. The devil is warring against the people of the church, but Jesus Christ is protecting the church. The mission will succeed. And so we pick up in chapter 13 and look at specifically how the devil is attacking us in this present age. And we find in this chapter and following chapters four of his apprentices, four beasts that are sent forward to war against the church. These are not literal creatures, but these are worldviews, worldviews that are warring against the Christian worldview, the gospel itself. And we are asking the question at every point, which is the whole question of the book of Revelation, yes, Jesus wins, but how do we endure? How do we overcome to be those winners with Him at the end of the age? And the answer comes this morning from verses 1 through 10, which is where we start reading. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he will go. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here, 
is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God will stand forever. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of addressing 47 graduates from a seminary that we support, let us say, in a very large Far Eastern country where it is illegal to be a Christian, where the government has, has uh, pursued and harassed and, and imprisoned and persecuted anyone who speaks the name of Christ, stands for God's Word. These are 47 graduates from a seminary that you have partnership for, uh, partnered with for a number of years, and these graduates know full well what they're going into. I asked before I spoke to them, I asked the dean, is there anything I should avoid? Are there words, are there terms that I should avoid that would make life difficult for them? He said, there is nothing more that they could suffer that they, will, that they have not already suffered. There is a blog by which they put out to the world how they are doing, what they are suffering, how you can pray for them, and we sponsor that blog. This week there was a post by a woman who writes anonymously, but she's one of the workers in in one of the churches in this country. And her primary calling is to pray. And uh, her prayers have resulted in persecution. She is praying for the kingdom of Satan to fall. She is praying for the church of Jesus Christ to advance. And she's been persecuted and, and uh, imprisoned for that on occasion. So the interviewer for this blog asked her, how, do you, how is it that you and your fellow believers continue to love a city that hates you in response. She said, it is not that we make the world our enemies, but that the world unreasonably hates us. The world unreasonably hates us because it unreasonably hates Christ. What is more, the world does not believe in love that has no explainable cause. She says that they were rounded up on one occasion because they refused to go to the state-sponsored church. And they said, no, we're going to worship according to the Scriptures. And they were all rounded up and taken to jail. And they were offered some alternatives. They said, you can deny Christ and you will be allowed to stay in the city. You can flee the city. But if you stay in the city and continue to profess Christ, we're going to imprison you. They stayed and continued to profess Christ. The authorities asked them, why in the world do you do this? Why don't you take the freedom that we're offering to you? Flee the city. And they said, because God loves us. And we love you. She said, love demands, loving this city demands that we stand for justice. It means that we seek justice from our, so they have been persecuted, so they complain to the courts that they should not be persecuted as 
human beings. They should have the freedom to worship as they thought. They, they said, there, we know that there's no hope of gaining any victory in the courts, but they said, this is what happens. When we are taken into court, we have to explain why we are there, what we're complaining about, and it gives us the opportunity to preach the good name of God to these government officials. We explain in these judicial circles that we are God's people who are called to live in this city and to love them. Praise the Lord that we get the privilege of preaching the gospel. She said as well, we endure in the faith. Where do you think she got those words? From our text. We endure in the faith. That's the way it ends in verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And why do they endure and uh, continue to believe? Because they have known the good news of Jesus Christ, which is love. They've experienced the love of a slain lamb. They've experienced the love of a Savior who came to them and brought them salvation. It's what's described in this passage. And it's all the motivation we need as well. Knowing that the lamb was slain for us, that is, he shed his innocent blood that whoever should ask him by faith should receive that free gift of righteousness in substitution for your sins. And the promise will is that your name will be written in the book of life. If that is true, that is the good news, then what must we do in response? It's in our text. We respond with faithfulness, obedience to his word, and we endure no matter the cost. Let me show you how it falls out in verses 1 through 4. We, first of all, responding to the slain lamb of God, we determine that we are faithfully going to obey God's word, faithfully. And faithfully obeying God's word means we resist the devil's intimidation, and we resist his parodies. Look at the intimidating uh, power or the intimidating presence of the devil as he has sent this emissary, this representative, through this beast, this worldview. Verse 1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, power, seven heads with diadems, authority it seems and blasphemous names on its heads, mocking God. And, and then this beast is, is this amalgamation of various things. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, that is, he's fast, and he has paws like a bear. He is strong, and he is, has a mouth of a lion. He is aggressive, and he conquers its foe. And to that, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority, even so much authority, as it says in verse 7, that it could conquer the saints of God. Now, what's he describing? He's just describing the worldviews of this present age. We've been talking about the age that we're in, and he says he variously refers to it as 
42 months as here, or 1260 days, or three and a half years. We don't know what those words mean exactly, but we know that they're describing where we are right now. The church in militant, the church that is being opposed by the devil, but going forward against the gates of hell, and warring against the good news of the gospel that's recorded in every sentence of all of the scriptures. Warring against it is our worldviews that appear to be the latest thing, swift as a leopard. They seem to be powerful. You want to be on the right side of them like a bear's claws. They seem to be taking over everything else like a lion's mouth. They seem to be able, these worldviews, seem even to be able to shake their fists at God and say, he is, the Bible is, is uh, full of errors. The Christian worldview is a farce. Christians are behind the times. They seem to be able to say it and get away with it. Even though the cross of Christ has dealt a wound to it and gathered a whole bunch of people named Christians all over the world following, it seems like that wound is healed over and the devil's worldviews are going forward. And then we notice in this passage that, that not only do we resist the devil's intimidation, that's those, that power of those worldviews can be very intimidating. Even to us Christians, it can be very intimidating because they threaten to take things away from us. They, take, they, 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 they call us, uh, like they say we're knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. We're behind the times. We're, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're anachronistic. We are, we are, we are uh, in a world to ourselves. We're irrelevant. We resist intimidation. We also have to resist the devil's parodies. Now, parody is making fun of something that is serious. It's, 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 it is diminishing something that is important and replacing it with something that seems to be more attractive. That's what the devil does. You see, the, the devil uh, appears to have authority. He appears to have a crown but this authority and these crowns, this authority and this, this power is placed on something as ugly as a dragon, as ugly as a beast that is made up of these various animal parts. The big idea is this, everything the devil touches, he ruins. Everything the devil touches, he makes less than beautiful. Whether it's a beautiful human being, whether it's a beautiful relationship, whether it's a beautiful institution of marriage, whether it's a beautiful institution of government, whether it's a, a beautiful relationship among people, whether it is a beautiful body made in the image of God, whatever the devil touches, he dehumanizes and debases it and makes it grotesque. But because of his intimidation... Those who are not rooted in Scripture can give way to it to the point that in verse 4, they actually begin to worship the dragon. They may not know that they're worshiping a dragon, but they become so worn down that they give in to the dragon's power. And we've said that even can happen to Christians. Not that Christians are possessed by demons, but Christians 
As we said, Paul told Timothy to pray that God would grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth of those who were stirring up dissension in his church. Pray for them that they would be set free from the control and the power of the devil being held captive by him to do his will. So by looking at the lamb who was slain, the beautiful image of Christ, the all-sufficient and and sovereign power of Christ rising in victory over the grave, we are motivated and empowered and emboldened to resist the devil's intimidation and resist the devil's parodies. Now, what is the application of that? The application of that has to be very specific, and it can even be controversial because we have to name things that look good but are really deceiving us, and we run the risk of offending, but all for the ultimate purpose of creating disciples for Jesus Christ alone. Let me, let me venture this theory of where we are as a nation, as a, as a world. As, let me dare to characterize what is happening, happening even in the broader church of Jesus Christ. What the devil is trying to do is to force us into the either-or logical fallacy. If you study logic in college or even in high school, you'll learn that there are certain fallacies in arguments. Certain people make certain mistakes, leaps of logic or non sequiturs. And one of them is the either or fallacy. That is, I'm going to force you to make a choice between this or that when in reality, those are not the only two choices. A third thing or more have to be said. Now, here's an example, one humorous example that you may be aware of. Suppose a good man in the city is put on the witness stand and the lawyer says, you must answer yes or no. Are you still beating your wife? Now, if the man's a good man, he's never beaten his wife. If he answers yes, he's lying. He has never beaten his wife. But if he answers no, what is he saying? In effect, he's saying, well, I used to beat her, but I don't anymore. That's wrong too. That's an either-or fallacy. He, to answer correctly, he has to use more words. He has to say something like, I love my wife. I would never lay a hand on her to harm her. I never have, and I never will. Now, the Lord addresses either or fallacy in multiple places in Scripture. The, the, the uh, Pharisees tried to get Jesus to say, uh, what, what, what should we do about paying taxes? Should we, should we bow to Caesar or bow to God? And Jesus cut through the, 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 the trick, and he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Now, some people say, so you do some things for Caesar and you do some things for God. No, what Jesus was saying is everything belongs to God, even Caesar. There's an even clearer one in Joshua 5, where Joshua is going into the promised land And he is confronting those enemies who are trying to keep the Lord's people from going into the promised land of Canaan. 
and uh, Joshua's fighting his way through, and he comes to a military commander, and he holds his sword up to this military commander, Joshua 5, and he says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the military commander says, no. And then he explains, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. Joshua didn't say another word. He hit his knees and bowed before God. This was an angel representing God. And God was saying through this angel, you never ask me whose side I'm on. The only question, the only one who has the right to ask is I. And I ask, whose side are you on? Are you for me or against me? And what determines whether you are on the side of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, or anything else is whether you are standing on Scripture or not. Now, let me show you how that works out in, in daily life, in some of the very controversial issues in our world. And here you are going to think, I'm a fool. But if we truly believe that the gospel is not only good news, but the best news, then we shy away from nothing. And we apply the good news of Jesus Christ to every issue and say, compellingly, you shouldn't be reduced to either or, but rather that which is infinitely better. That which is better than anything the divisions of the world have to offer. So let's start with an easy one. Um, <clears throat> recently, I was walking, I was on the street, and uh, someone asked me this. They put this in front of me. They said, do you believe, do you preach that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, that only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, that's the only way to get into heaven? Or do you preach that we must do good to the poor? I said, you have just committed the either-or fallacy. Didn't know what that was either. That's, let me explain. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ in Him alone plus nothing else. But when Jesus becomes your Savior, you want to do good to the poor because He came to you in your poverty. And He gives us the privilege of serving in response to grace. Here's another kind of easy one. Are you a greenpeacer, somebody who resorts to violence to protect the environment, or are you an anti-environmentalist? We answer with the angel, no. The Bible teaches that God has created all things good. The Bible has, teaches that He put human beings made in His image in the center of the creation to be good stewards of it and to serve, uh, to, to serve Him in such a way that we preserve it and conserve it for the good of those made in His image. It's not either or. Maybe it gets a little more difficult. Are you a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer? No. Are you a masker or an anti-masker? No. What we believe is the sixth commandment says thou shalt not kill and therefore you should do everything in your power to preserve your life and the life of your neighbors. 
And in determining what your part of calling is in that, wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors. And whatever you do by faith, or whatsoever is not done by faith, is sin. We have a bigger answer. Are you pro-gay or anti-gay? No. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person is broken. The Bible teaches man should leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. That sex is not to occur outside of marriage. And that even if people reject us, we pursue them lovingly. Are you contemporary worship or traditional worship? Back to an easy one. No. We worship the Lord God in a way that is decent and in order and edifies all, that translates the gospel into the language of the people and facilitates the worship of God's people to their God. Are you for BLM, Black Lives Matter, the, the political organization, or for its opposition, All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, or, and we say no. We believe every person is made in the image of God, has inherent dignity. Jesus tells us to stand up for the least of these, those who cannot stay, stand for themselves, even if it means losing our life or losing our rights. The Bible teaches that we submit to all authority, and the Bible teaches that when authorities abrogate their power, we oppose them. Are you a Marxist or a capitalist? No. Marxism is atheistic. Capitalism can be atheistic. It doesn't have to be. But what the Bible teaches is let everyone work at something with his own hand that he might have something to give. And let him who has more give to him who has less. Are you for critical race theory or for the gospel and social justice statement? No. The Bible teaches that we pursue reconciliation, not the power of one person or race over another. We pursue unity so that we call one another brother and sister and father and mother. We oppose racism as the devil's tool of demeaning the image of God, even if it costs us everything. And we believe that Jesus Christ called us to take up for those who can't speak for themselves or haven't spoken for themselves, that we take personal responsibility for our sin. And even if we're not responsible for something that is broken, when we find that it is broken, we utilize the resources of the throne of heaven and bring healing and repair and justice to it. And we believe that there is justice in Scripture. And we believe that we are called to serve the poor just as Jesus commanded Those are better answers. Maybe they're not sufficient. You could preach a sermon on each one and tease them out individually, but I want you to get to the idea that we must not allow 
political forces or social media algorithms or people within the church or parties within the church or parties within the culture to push us into either or fallacy. But because to do so is to reduce the best news that we have to preach. We resist the deceit of the devil because we love the lamb who was slain. And we endure as the text teaches us. No matter the persecution which is here and is coming, we endure it because we are confident our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. We don't have to spend as much time here as we have done because because we've already camped on this a lot in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. In Revelation 3 verse 5, we are told that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why is that important? Because in the day of, that John was writing in, the, the, the pressure of political and social forces was on Christians to say, if you don't conform to us, if you don't conform to one party or another, if you don't conform to the way we socialize, the way we vote, the way we spend our money, the way we worship, if you don't conform to these things, we're going to boycott you. We're going to cut you out of the economy. We're going to take away your stuff. We may even throw you in jail. We could even kill you. And Jesus said, let them do to you whatever they need to do. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Be courageous and take the fight of the kingdom of God to them because they are enslaved in that worldview. They'll never hear the good news unless you are courageous enough to speak it. And then he tells us in the rest of our passage in verse, verse 10, we must prepare to suffer. Brothers and sisters, this is why I'm preaching through Revelation it's to teach us how to suffer. If this pandemic has shown us anything, the political turmoil of our, of our uh, country has told us anything, it is that we have not been well formed. And we have not learned how to live as disciples of Christ when the going gets tough. And we're prone to look to every other force for deliverance than Jesus Christ. So we're looking at these strong promises that we might be courageous representatives of Christ. And Jesus puts it up front. He said, look, you may be taken into captivity, verse 10. You may be even slain by the sword. But you must endure by faith. Why? Because there is nothing this world can take from you but that will be more than made up for in that day which is to come. And this is a short time, only 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years or time, times, and half a time. It's a limited time. But eternity is coming. And in eternity, you're either going to be on the side of the conquering lamb or you're going to be on the embarrassing left-hand side of him when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus wins. We want to win with him. I mentioned last week that, that, um, that sermon by Bishop Benjamin Kwashi of Nigeria. Benjamin Kwashi preached a sermon to his people 
and said, uh, we Nigerians have been suffering for our faith ever since the gospel came to our shores in 1907. We have been, we have been delivered a gospel uh, through the blood of many martyrs. We have a responsibility to live and finish well in their memory. He is a bishop who has, who has lived what he preaches. In 2009, after he led his church in protest against the abuses that, the, that Muslim radicals were carrying out against, against the Christians, Muslim radicals in the government were, were abusing and, and persecuting Christians, and he led a march against those abuses. He had no hope of their listening to him, but he, like our friend from the far eastern country, was wanting to preach the gospel even against the gates of hell. Sometime later, those who were offended by what he did broke into his home while he wasn't there and abused his wife, left her for dead. He found her the way she was. They didn't flee the country. He stayed there. He nursed her back to health. They stayed there. And one year to the day later, they came back and they found him with machetes and knives. And they dragged him in front of his wife and his child, dragged him outside and said, we're going to kill you and silence you once and for all. And he said, would you at least let me pray first before you kill me? They said they let him. He began to pray. His wife burst through the merry men who had abused her, and she grabbed his left hand, and she knelt and said, we're going to pray together until you kill us. Eventually, he felt someone grab his right hand. He looked up. It was his son, his 13-year-old son. He said, get out of here, son. They're going to kill you too. He said, Dad. They're not here. They're gone. They ran when you started praying. It doesn't happen in every instance. But it is happening spiritually, and it will happen at the great day. That those who love not their lives even unto death, who trust in the blood of the Lamb, and who speak the word of their testimony regardless of what the world threatens, stand on Scripture alone, the day is coming when the devil and his minions will be thrown away. They'll not only run, but they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And all that will be left is King Jesus and those who follow him. Let's follow him no matter what. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we have no courage in and of ourselves. This preacher is a cowardly person. So we pray for pastor and people that you would make us bold with the good news. I thank you for these people. I thank you for these people of Second Presbyterian Church, these noble Bereans who study the Scriptures 
and hang with difficult studies of your word because they want to know what the Bible says. I thank you for the way they preach the gospel to me by their lives. Thank you for the unity you have given to us, the unity you've given to our officers, and please use it to advance the kingdom of God and rattle the gates of hell. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake, and God's people said together, amen.